Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Two years ago, 22 people were killed by a gunman disguised as a police officer over the course of 13 hours. Panic and confusion set in as the rampage continued in rural Nova Scotia, with the shooter targeting people he knew, as well as complete strangers. And amidst all the grief, there were a lot of questions about how this happened. So many questions, in fact, that there's now an inquiry. The public phase just started this week. The hope is that from the highest levels of the RCMP on down, people are going to be brought before this commission and have to explain mistakes that were made. The Globe's Greg Mercer has been following this from Halifax. He's on the show to explain what we still don't know about the shooting, the questions about how the police handled it, and what the families and communities affected want from this inquiry. This is The Decibel. Greg, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. I think a lot of Canadians do remember this mass shooting that happened in, in Porta Peak, Nova Scotia, in April 2020. But can you just remind us of the scale and the severity of what happened? Absolutely. Yeah, it was the worst mass shooting we've ever seen in this country. And it was over the course of 13 hours in a rural part of Nova Scotia. A gunman dressed as a Mountie driving a fake RCMP cruiser that he had made himself. He went on a rampage, you know, heavily armed with assault rifles. Uh, he killed 22 people, including a, an expectant mother. It, it, he hit the road in his, his fake police cruiser and he went across a big swath of the county surrounding Truro and, and covered a lot of ground going to rural places, actually going to people's homes out in the country and mm-hmm. killing them. He killed people on the side of the road who were out walking their dog. He killed people who were on their way to work on the Sunday morning. So um, it was quite a territory that he covered. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, as you're saying all this, it's, it's, we remember it was quite horrific. This was happening early in the pandemic when a lot of things were up in the air. People were feeling scared um, just because of everything that was going on. So this, is, this was really something um, very significant that happened. As you said, I guess the, the worst mass shooting in, in Canadian history then. This is it. And you're right. The pandemic played a huge role in this. I mean, people were not able to have any kind of public grieving uh, around this event because they couldn't gather. Right. We were in the middle of a lockdown and the very first wave of COVID as it was hitting the country. So the pandemic, you're right, changed the whole feeling, I think, around this massacre and how Nova Scotians in particular processed it and, and tried to make sense of it. And of course, we're talking about this mass shooting again, because there's an inquiry into what happened that's starting this week. And this is a general question, but maybe you have a sense of it because you are you are out there. Like, What's the feel in in Halifax and and in these communities about this process? I think it's mixed. I think people have waited a long time for this inquiry. Right. They've been calling for this inquiry for a long time. At the same time, there's a lot of anger around how it's been handled. They feel like the, the commission that's running the inquiry has not been as transparent and as upfront as it should be. Um, so there's some frustration and, and that is caught up, you know, in the grief that people are still feeling with this mm-hmm. event. So, and I think that this week it's sort of been touched off again, right? Nova Scotia has not been able to fully come to terms with this massacre and they're still waiting for the inquiry to kind of soothe some of that pain and it hasn't happened yet. 
And so what is this process? And I guess, you know, the big question, too, is what, what exactly is this inquiry? So it's an independent commission that's it's paid for both by the province and by the federal government. And it's not cheap. It's cost about $13 million to date. They've been at it for about 16 months already. The scale of this inquiry is unlike anything I think we've ever seen in the country in terms of the amount of witnesses, the amount of crime scenes, 17 crime scenes, just the sheer amount of data, tens of thousands of pages of documents that that it's going to produce and sift through. But what's new this week is that we're finally getting to the public portion of that process. Finally, the public can hear the kind of questions that are being asked. So that's kind of where we're at in the process. By November, this inquiry has to produce a final report that's going to provide recommendations to government on how to prevent similar tragedies. So it's not like a trial. It's not it's not intended to assign blame or award damages, but it is meant to say, here's where mistakes were made. Here's where we can make legislative changes or changes to, say, training for RCMP that will help prevent this kind of thing from happening again. I, I was reading, I think, in our coverage that families of the victims here were pushing for this kind of inquiry rather than just a, a more basic review, I guess, of what happened. What's the difference? So, yeah, that was a big deal. The province said we plan to have a review, a formal review of what happened that can you know, examine mistakes. Families of victims said that's not good enough. We, we want an inquiry that can compel people to come and testify. That's a big difference. The, this inquiry has subpoena power. Mm-hmm. The hope is that from the highest levels of the RCMP on down, people are going to be brought before this commission and, and have to explain mistakes that were made. And so, as you said, the, the public portion of this process has is, is just started. What's happened so far in, in the first few days here then? Yeah, so we had a lot of drama on day one of the public proceedings. So on Tuesday, Tim Houston, the, the Nova Scotia Premier, he came out before the hearings began and he he slammed the process. He said, the commission that's running this inquiry is being disrespectful to families of victims. He said they're keeping people in the dark. He said they're not sharing basic information like who the witnesses uh, that they intend to call will be and whether those witnesses can be cross-examined by lawyers of the family. So he basically slammed the whole process and said, we need to do better. This is not good enough. And this is not what people wanted when they asked for a public inquiry. And normally with a public part of an inquiry like this, would that kind of information be readily available? So normally in a public inquiry, and they all look a little different, you know that there's a a list of witnesses who are going to come forward and people get a chance to cross-examine them. Mm -hmm. This is being done a little differently because of the sheer number of people involved. The, The commission says we can't have all of those people come forward. We have until November. So to speed up the process, what they're doing is a lot of interviews behind closed doors, and then they're, they're going to present those interviews in these documents, these foundational documents. But they have tried to adjust a little bit. They have tried to do a better job of involving some of the families of victims and giving them a chance to kind of have a voice. But they're also a little defensive. You know, they're, they're, they're also saying we're an independent process. We don't want outside influence, particularly political influence. So you need to let us do our job. You mentioned uh, Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston was speaking out about this. Uh, Sean Fraser, who's a, an MP from Nova Scotia, also happens to be a federal minister. He was also speaking out about this process. What was he saying? He's basically saying that he's heard from a lot of people who don't have faith in the process. And that's bad for an inquiry, right? That's asking people, hey, trust us. Trust us that we want to get to the bottom of this. And when you have elected leaders from both levels of government saying, a lot of people don't trust you. That's not a good place to start. But the hope is they can come up with recommendations that 
say the RCMP or the provincial government or even federally will actually take to heart and enact, right? I mean, at the end of the day, their power is limited to recommendations. They can't force or compel government to do anything about it, but at least they can come up with what should be, you know, thoughtful, well-researched recommendations that say, hey, this is why this happened. Here's something we could change. And it could be anything from, you know, the way this guy was able to purchase uh, police equipment online, the way he was able to buy weapons in America and bring them into Nova Scotia undetected. And, and the way that we alert public when these kind of manhunts are happening, That's these are the kind of recommendations that could come out of this inquiry. So this inquiry is just starting now, Greg, but since April 2020, what else have we learned about what happened during this mass shooting? Well, we've learned a, a lot more about some of the ways that he was able to gather the weapons. That's come from warrants that we, you know, the Global Mail and other outlets have been able to get through a legal challenge. We've learned more about some of the help that he got. Um, his common law spouse has been charged with helping him in this attack in transferring some weapons um, for him. Now, the police are quick to say she didn't know what he was planning to do, but she has been charged criminally for that. Uh, So has her brother and her brother-in-law. So we're learning more about some of the people who were around him. We've learned more about some of the close calls. I mean, there were other people he tried to kill and was not able to because they wouldn't answer the door. You know, this is stuff that in the early days we didn't have a full picture of. You've also written about some questions about financial transactions that had happened beforehand that weren't flagged. What about those? Yeah, so Canada has a a system in place to monitor transactions that are unusual. And the whole intent is to monitor money laundering and financing for terrorism or extremist behavior. This guy, Gabriel Warman, was flagged multiple times in the past and also after the attack. In the past for some things he was doing with cash that was a little unusual, moving money around between his companies. That on itself in itself is not that strange, but after the attack, PayPal submitted a report to our federal regulator saying that he had been flagged for buying police equipment online and a lot of it. And PayPal's defense is well, you know, you look at these transactions on their own, they don't suggest anything, but when you look at the big picture, we realize now that he was using this as part of the attack. That's among the unanswered questions is, should companies like PayPal do a better job of seeing patterns in the purchases that people are doing online? But also, how far do we go in terms of monitoring, you know, when it comes to people's privacy? Yeah, I think the the one thing that a, a lot of people really remember from this is the fact that he was driving around in a car that looked like an RCMP car, and he had you know the details of it really down pat. Yeah. How did he How did he manage to do that? So he he spent a lot of time and a lot of money doing it. You can buy used police cars at auction. Well, sorry, you used to be able to. The RCMP has now prevented that as a result of this attack. You can no longer buy surplus RCMP vehicles, but of course you can buy police vehicles from any other police force. You can buy them online. You can buy them at auction. He did that. He actually bought three former police cars. He had a friend who made decals for him, like lookalike RCMP decals. He went and bought everything from, you know, the, the light board, the, the ram on the front of the vehicle, you know, the police lights, the, the radio, all the things that would make it look like a real police cruiser. He bought all that stuff online and he paid for it with a credit card. And that was done on eBay and it's tracked by PayPal. And, and unfortunately, people can still do that. A lot of the stuff is still for sale. 
One of the main criticisms of, of how the police handled this situation that you mentioned earlier is that the public wasn't really warned that this was happening and that there was a dangerous situation going on. Can you just describe a little bit about that? What did the police reveal at the time when this was going on? By midnight on April 18th, police knew that he was driving a police cruiser. They had information that was reliable. He was dressed as a Mountie, and they, they should have known that he had escaped the perimeter that they had that set up around his cottage in Porta Peak. Hmm. They withheld that information for about 10 hours until the following morning on Sunday, they finally alerted the public that they were on the hunt for this guy, but they only did it on Twitter. So that caused a lot of anger, especially in rural parts of Nova Scotia where people saying, we're not on Twitter, we're not checking Twitter. You need to do a better job of, of telling us when this stuff is happening. How do we know what police knew at that point. So you said police knew the, the night before, but I guess, yeah, how, how do we how do we know that? We know a lot of this from the warrants um, that we have we've obtained through a, a legal challenge, the Globe and other media outlets. The police have kind of laid out their case, their evidence to a judge in order to get warrants to be able to gather more evidence. What did the police say about why they didn't use the emergency system to alert people? They've never really offered a good explanation other than they, they say that they needed approval from the province, and the province disputes that. There's been a little bit of passing of the buck. Greg, there's been a lot of questions in recent years about the role of police, right? We've seen the the calls to defund the police. And recently in Ottawa, there's been questions about the role of police as well in the city. From everything you've seen with your reporting for this situation, how might the discussions here, I guess, add to the broader conversations about the role of police and, and policing? Well, I think certainly in Nova Scotia, I mean, this has hurt the RCMP. It's hurt the police. It hurt trust in the police. And I think that's that's partly a sign of our times. I think there's a lack of confidence in our institutions, including the RCMP. I think that people expect the police to be more accountable than they have been. And I think that this case might be different 20 years ago. But I think right now there's a real lack of trust and people are more willing to buy into, in some cases, conspiracy theories around what the police knew, whether the police are covering up basic facts about this case. There's a lot of wild speculation in Nova Scotia connected to this. And there are people who believe that this guy was everything from working for the police to that they had been tipped off ahead of time and they looked the other way. Is there any credence to those notions from what you've investigated? I think the truth is probably not as dramatic, but we don't know. I find it very difficult to believe that police would have prior knowledge of this and and didn't do anything to prevent it. We do know, however, they did have prior complaints about this guy, that he was violent to his spouse, that there were allegations of domestic abuse. Uh, We knew knew that he'd been making threats, that he wanted to kill a, a cop. We know that he was gathering weapons and people complained to police about that. And we know the police didn't apparently intervene at that time. So now as, as this inquiry goes on, what can we expect in the coming days, Greg, or, or what can we look, look ahead to, I guess, that's going to happen here? So it's, it's about to really get into the nitty gritty of this case. And in, in next week in particular, we're going to start to get a lot of details around the police response and the 911 calls and how, how that was handled. So I think the heavy lifting is about to begin and it's going to go on for months. There's going to be dozens and dozens of days of public proceedings like like the ones we've, we're having now until this fall when they are expected to finish their work and produce a, a final report in November. We've mentioned already that this was Canada's worst mass shooting. What's been done since it happened to make sure something like this 
doesn't happen again, both in Nova Scotia, but across Canada? It's a couple of things. So now in, in Nova Scotia, uh, there's been legislation that's brought in to prevent people from, from buying police equipment, uh, you know, in police f- uniforms, that kind of stuff like this guy did. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's only within the province. You can still buy the stuff online and bring it into Nova Scotia. And that's, that's a, sort of a loophole that needs to be addressed. Uh, the province has done a better job of using public alert system when, when there are uh, risks to the public. And certainly in the early days after this attack, you could almost say it was being overused, right? If someone heard a firecracker in their neighborhood and called the police, they started alerting the public on their cell phones. I mean, there was kind of a gut reaction to this. But the province is trying to do a better job of using that system. Um, and, and of course, federally, there has been more work done to ban the kind of uh, assault rifles and the weapons that this guy used in the attack. So slowly, government is trying to respond to this tragedy. Greg, thank you so much for, for following this and for speaking with us today. Thanks, Manica. My pleasure. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.